You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So would you turn in your Bibles, please, to um, 2 Kings chapter 5. In fact, on the, on the worship folder, you'll see the scripture that is um, uh, printed that we'll be following. This week and next week, we're going to be looking at uh, this story of, the, of uh, Naaman the leper and his discovery of grace in God making him whole once again through uh, this uh, passage of scripture, through the ministry of Elisha the prophet. We're going to look just at the first eight verses this morning, and then next week we'll go on through verse 18 and uh, conclude the story. So if you would look with me at um, these verses, I think it's on the screen, Uh, you can follow along as I read them. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from a skin disease, leprosy. Now, the Aramaeans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his skin disease? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, in your worship folder, you'll find a a brief outline. I was told that I could only go one page of outline. So I wrote my own that uh, I'll be uh, following along. Interesting story. This is part of the history books of the Old Testament not where that's a story of Moses or Abraham or something like that, but this is just the history of the Jewish people from the time that uh, they entered into the Promised Land uh, to the time of the prophets. It covers more than a thousand years. And so when you're reading in First and Second Kings, there are stories that mostly are about the kings and the things that took place in Israel during their reign, but you have to understand in this thousand years plus, there were so many events and things that took place, they couldn't all be covered in, this, in the scriptures. 
And so they selected some of them and put them in. And so when the rabbis would be telling this story of Naaman the leper, the, the Jewish people would be asking themselves, as well as every passage that they would be reading, why was this story included? Why did uh, this story get put into the text of our scriptures? Is there something special here that we are to learn? What is it that God would have in mind for us to learn from this story? So as we read and study this story, we have to keep in mind that they were discovering things that God was saying to them through these stories. And subsequently, as we read them, we have to ask the same question. What is in this story specifically that God has for us even this morning? Even right now as we study this story, what are we to learn from this story? Well, let's look at the story and see what it, what it says. Now, the first thing we notice is that this story is about Naaman. Now, Naaman is a Gentile. Now, this is really strange because the history books of the Jewish people, all of them have as their main characters Jewish men or women. And here we have a Gentile. In fact, it's about the only place in the Bible where an entire chapter is given over to the story of God making a Gentile whole. And not only do we discover that Naaman is a Gentile, but he's also the general of Israel's enemy. At that time, Syria, uh, or Ammon, was the primary enemy of Israel. And they would attack each other and raid each other's villages and things. And this is the guy who plans all of the military uh, strategy against Israel. So here's a Gentile enemy that gets a whole chapter in the book of 2 Kings. And so you would have to wonder what the people would be thinking. What, what is it that God's going to teach us about a, from a Gentile story? And we should ask that same question. In fact, in the story, it's very interesting, <clears throat> in this first verse here, we find that the Lord has given him victory over Israel. Wait a minute, the reader would say. The Lord's supposed to be giving us victory over our enemies, not giving our enemies victory over us. What's going on here? Obviously, there's something that they hadn't learned yet that they're going to learn in this story. And then it continues, but although he was a great man, this Gentile, this general, he had leprosy. And the people would say, oh, fine, serves him right. You know, that's what this guy should have. Maybe this is a story about this guy dying as a result of his evil against us through the disease of leprosy. Well, that would make sense. And then the story continues and tells us that his wife has a slave girl, uh, a girl, a Jewish girl, who was stolen from Israel in one of the raids that uh, Syria brought against against Israel, they stole this girl. They probably killed the men, raped the women, and stole the children, sold them into slavery. And, and this one girl is a servant. She's a slave in the home of this Gentile general, our enemy. Um, and you would probably, they're probably thinking, I wonder what else happened to this girl. This is horrible, this is terrible. But this girl says, in the, t in the, in the text, she says, 
if only my master were in Samaria, which is the capital city of um, Israel, and Samaria was also the northern kingdom of Israel, if only he were in our land, he would discover that there is a prophet who could cure him of his leprosy. Now, everyone in Syria wanted him healed, and so his wife goes and tells him, hey, our servant girl uh, said that there's a guy in Samaria who could cure you of your leprosy. Now, you have to understand, the status that Naaman has, he's been to every doctor. He's been to every clinic. He's been to every soothsayer. He's been to every guy who says, abracadabra, I can make you. Well, he, he's paid all kinds of money. He's probably already gone to Mexico and tried Laetrile. You know, I mean, he, he is, he's desperate. And so this little girl says, hey, there's a guy in our country who cures people of leprosy. And he's so desperate that his wife tells him that, and he goes and tells the king. Now, there's some risk in that, right? I mean, the king says, what? You know, you want me to send you to Israel? Well, the king is desperate too because he's his number one guy and he wants him whole. He wants him healthy. He wants the leprosy gone so he can continue uh, with his war against Israel. And so the king says, I know what we'll do. We'll send a bunch of money to the king of Israel. Evidently, they, they had the same issue we have with health care. <laughs> if you want to get well, you better have a really good insurance or you better have a lot of money. Because this amount of money, gold, silver, and the jewels that were made, that the clothes uh, contained, uh, scholars suggest that this could be, in our money today, as much as five and a half million dollars. This is a king's ransom. I mean, this is a ton of money. And so he sends him to the king of, of Israel. Uh, kind of a bribe. If you will cure my general of his leprosy, I will give you all this money. If you send him to the prophet. Now it's interesting, as you read the next point, the king of Israel doesn't have a clue that there's a prophet in his country that can cure people of Israel. Isn't that interesting? The one person that ought to know, the king, doesn't have a clue. He thinks that this whole deal is just another way that the king of Syria is using to try to start a war, at least a fight, with Israel. And so he tears his clothes as, as a sign of, of um, uh, as a sign of, you know, I can't do anything about this. We're going to end up in war of his anger, of his frustration. Now, that word gets sent around quickly, because whenever a king tears his clothes, bad things are going to follow. And so everybody knows about this, even Elisha the prophet. Now, you need to understand that the king lives in the city of Samaria, Samaria, which is a beautiful city at that time. And Elisha the prophet lives up on the side of the mountain of Mount Carmel, at the headwaters, one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's out in the boonies. I mean, we're talking about, you know, of course, you don't know where I live, where I came from in the Pocono Mountains. <clears throat> That's pretty much in the boonies. This is, uh, the Pocono Mountains is kind of like a, a city compared to where Elisha lives. It's way out there, up in Yosemite somewhere, back in the mountains, there's a cabin, and that's where this guy lives. 
and Elisha sends word. And he says, why have you torn your clothes? He says, come to me. Have him come to me. The basic invitation in the Bible. Come to me. And he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So that's the first part of the story. Now, certainly there's some thoughts that the people who are reading this story are going to think about and that the rabbis want them to learn. And there's certainly some thoughts that, that we need to pick up on in this story as we continue on. So let me, let, let me just share with you some thoughts that you'll find in your outline um, uh, this morning. Here's the first thought. I think that one of the messages that God is trying to communicate to his people in this story is this. God's grace is broad enough to include Gentiles, even our enemies. Now, Israel struggled with that concept. In fact, all the way through the Old Testament, one of the charges against Israel was that they had kept God as their exclusive possession. That Jehovah God was theirs and theirs alone. Other nations had other gods, we have Jehovah. He's ours, he's not yours. Now remember, when God called Abraham, who was the first uh, Jewish person, uh, God called Abraham, he says, listen, I'm going to bring together from your seed a great people, a great nation. And one of the purposes of this nation is for this nation to be a light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are to be able to see what it means for a people to put their hope and trust and faith in me as their God. And your, the blessing that I show to you should move them towards a relationship with me. In fact, you have the purpose of moving them towards a relationship with me, the Gentiles. But instead, the Jewish people took the attitude that Gentiles had one value, and their value was to be fuel for the fires of hell. It's hard to encourage people when you believe that that's their purpose in life. <clears throat> and, and so, rather than the Gentiles seeing the goodness of God, the Gentiles saw a bunch of people that they, grew, that they ended up hating. And throughout history, uh, that has been true. In fact, Jesus had the same encounter with, um, uh, with uh, uh, the religious leaders when he was here. Ryan has been talking about that for the last year. That rather than reaching out towards the Gentiles, the Pharisees and religious leaders saw the Gentiles as an excluded people. We don't want anything to do with you. Stay away from us. In fact, if anybody gets too close to them, they become unclean. Jesus is saying, listen, the whole, the whole idea of my kingdom is for, to discover that God loves the world. He, he loves everyone. God's grace is broad enough. In fact, the great commandment, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as themselves. Jesus broadened that out to help them to see and also love your enemy. This is not some new message. This is a message from the beginning of the time that God called his people into existence. 
And Jesus is trying to show us as well that God's grace is broad, God's grace is for everyone. The invitation is to everyone to come to him, to be in a relationship with him. So the question that probably these Jewish people needed to be asking themselves is how come we never heard this? How, how come the Jewish people didn't hear this? Our question to us would be, why don't we hear it? What keeps us from hearing that same message? Over the last several months, Ryan's been talking about the things that interfere between uh, the beauty uh, that is above the clouds that keep us from seeing the sun shining, those distractions, the, those issues that we focus on that keep us from seeing what God has given us, the position that we actually have. Why don't we hear that? Why don't we see this? Well, this, this story raises that question for us. Here's a second thought. Bad things happen to everyone. You know, that's not just a biblical thought. Uh, Forrest Gump gave us that same uh, insight, didn't he? When he was walking and he said, oh, it happens, right? It happens to everybody. Now, the Jewish people had this idea that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And, and this story is challenging that. It's challenging that. Jesus challenged that. Do you remember the story that uh, uh, was told just a few weeks ago, Ryan was talking about it, that uh, there was this uh, guy who was sitting by the gates of a city when Jesus and the disciples came in, and he was born blind. He was blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus this question, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind from birth. And Jesus said, hey, broken things aren't about cause and effect. These become opportunities for God to work. This is an opportunity for God to produce wholeness. When your life is messed up, it's an opportunity for God to, to create wholeness, not to find fault and blame. But that's what, that's, sometimes that's what the church does. That's what the Jewish people did, and they were, they were criticized. And this story is trying to show them it's not about any of those kinds of things. But rather, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, brokenness is, an, is a moment in life when there is an opportunity for God to bring wholeness out of that brokenness. That's the second thought I think this passage uh, is giving the people who are listening to it. Here's the third one. God speaks through unusual ways. Remember Moses? Watching his sheep out on the side of the mountain and all of a sudden there's a bush that's burning but it's not being consumed. That's not a paradigm. That's a one-off. God chose that way that time to speak. God chooses a lot of ways. In our story, it's a slave girl that comes from Israel who's talking to the general of Syria who captured her that there's a guy in Samaria who can cure your leprosy. What a strange way for God to communicate his grace to this man. See, God is always speaking in different ways. God speaks through his word. That's why we teach it week after week after week after week. God speaks through our relationships with each other. God speaks in those quiet times. You remember Elijah, who needed assurance of God's presence, and he's hiding in the cleft of a rock, 
and there's a firestorm, there's a windstorm, there's rain, there's all of this, and God wasn't in any of those tremendous expressions of power. And then there was a still, small voice. And that's where God was, in the still, small voice. God's always speaking in a lot of different ways to us. Are we aware of that? That's the first question that this ends. Second one, are we listening? Are we listening? Or are there too many, uh, so much other noise in our life that we can't hear it when God speaks? Because sometimes God speaks in strange ways to us. You remember in Psalm 148, it says, Be still and know that I am God. You're not going to discover God is God in activity. You discover it in those when you're still at rest from all of those other activities and focused on God. That's when you can hear him. Be still and you will know that I am God. Wow. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Are you aware of that? Four weeks is Christmas. It's beginning to look, right? I mean, <laughs> four weeks, only 38, 34 more shopping days till Christmas or, or whatever it is. You got to get to Robert Hall quickly. You know? Some of you guys don't even know what that is. That's okay. First week of Advent. The first week of Advent always speaks of the incarnation. We're, we're, we're talking about the fact that God is with us in Christ. He comes into the world through this baby, Jesus. Christmas is all about God being with us. It's about God being in us. The incarnation is that God enters in. As we move into a relationship with Jesus, the presence of God comes in, into us. He dwells within us, and his desire is to live his life through us. That's the message of the incarnation. God wants to speak to the world through you, through me. Are you aware of that? Are you listening to what he's saying to you to do, to be, where to go? God speaks through unusual ways. Here's the next thought. Risk is part of faith. Man, in this story, this guy had to risk some things, didn't he? He had to risk that this small slave girl wasn't just setting him up. He had to risk that, that what she said was true, and he had to take it to the king, who might have said, you're going to risk it all on the word of this slave girl? What, are you an idiot? He had to risk that the king would also believe and send him to the king of Israel. And then he had to risk going to the king of Israel. I mean, he's going with a platoon of men and a bunch of money, a, a perfect scenario for the king of Israel to have his army come out and capture them all and kill them and all of this. He had to risk that the king wouldn't do that. And then he has to risk going up to the boonies to some guy, Elisha, that he's never heard of, a prophet, and hopefully this guy can bring wholeness to his disease. Faith. He had a lot of evidence that this was true, but the faith required risk. Risk. You know, when, whenever we're confident of what God is saying to us, 
We know what he wants of us. You know, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven, and we're confident what his will is. In order to do it, it's going to require risk, isn't it? And so faith is going to connect with risk. And so there's nothing that we like more than assurance. We, we, we like certainty. You know, it's like talking to your investment guy. You know, everything sounds great, and then you are ready to sign the papers, and you read the small print. <laughs> Present experience might be impacted by past, or past performance might not be true in this case. In other words, you could lose all your money by investing here. So take the risk. <laughs> Faith, being the person God's called you to be, is going to require risk. Because a lot of people don't understand. They don't get it. And, and that's, that's why there was such a tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. They wanted things nice, easy, all buttoned up. And Jesus is saying, hey, let's go over here. Let's go to the Gentiles. Let's do this. Let's, let's love a, a homeless person. Let's love a, a prostitute. Let's love. Take the risk with me. He kept telling them, listen, it might cost you everything. You need to understand, following me is not, is not, is not simple. It's risky. Wow. Here's the next thought. It's pretty obvious in this passage. Often, those who should know what God is doing don't have a clue. If anyone should have known what's going on in Israel, it should have been the king, right? I mean, everybody reports to him. From out in all of the different tribes, they all come in. Let it, this guy doesn't have a clue. This guy doesn't have a clue. You know, I've thought about that a lot. You know, I was pastor of this church for 30 years. And most, many of the things that took place that became really wonderful ministries, I'm thinking of Journey to Bethlehem, I didn't have a clue what was going on. It kind of, it kind of emerged. And then I was let in on it. Uh, we're gonna need about 10 grand. Do you think you can fit? For what? And <clears throat> Often, those who should know what's going on don't have a clue. I, I think that's a powerful point. You know, sometimes we get so focused on our activity of what it was that God called us to be doing that we lose track of everything else that God's doing. That's not bad. That's not unusual. That's not a criticism. It's just that God is doing so much more than any one group of people can know what's going on and figure out. We took a course, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, uh, experiencing God. And in that, we learned that our, our task is to look around and see what God is doing and then join him in his work. You got to look around. Don't ask. Don't, don't, don't look for permission. Let God work and, and, and things emerge. Things emerge. And that's why I think scripture tells us, like in the book of James, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask God. God's the one who has wisdom. In the book of Isaiah, we're told, listen, seek the Lord while he may be found. And you'll, because his ways aren't your ways. So if you want to figure out what God's doing or what God has his plans for you, you've got to seek the Lord where he may be found. He's found in worship when his people gather together. 
He's found in his word. He's found in, in, in fellowship with other believers. He's found in service. He's found in prayer. Seek the Lord those places. Don't ask the people that you think ought to know because often they don't have a clue. And I think that's one of the things that this passage is, is saying to them. And then lastly, the invitation. I say, or, um, what's his name? Elisha says, let him come to me. Let him come to me. How many times does the scripture say, come to me? In Isaiah, come to the waters. You know, come to the feast. Come to what God is providing to you. Jesus said, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. Come to me. Come, come. Notice, the initiative is on our part to come. The invitation is on his part. He makes it. He says, listen, here's where you find wholeness. Is there risk? Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there, I mean, all the things we talked about. But you, if you come, you'll find wholeness. That's this story. This story gets weird next week, okay? <laughs> but at the end, he finds wholeness. Come, and you'll find wholeness. Is it the way you anticipate? Probably not. But you'll find wholeness. As we're here, in the first week of um, Advent, as we're anticipating these next four weeks, as, as it becomes closer and closer and, and more obvious that the King is here, that, that God is with us, the incarnation becomes a bigger and bigger piece of our experience. As we go and listen to the choir sing downtown Burbank and here in our auditorium, as, as we listen to those things, it becomes, it becomes this movement of the presence of God saying, I'm here, I'm here. We come to him and we know that he has a plan, he has a purpose for our lives. Maybe we've been Christians for years and years and years, but God's not done with us. There's more to do. And so he's calling us to him. Hey, listen, I got a word for you. Come, come to me and you will discover it. You will know what wholeness is all about. There's a process. And the process happens as we come to Jesus. He is not just a part of our experience. He is the source of everything and we come to him and he fills us with his presence, and he leads us in the way that he wants us to go. And our job is to keep saying, Lord, wherever you lead, I will follow. Lord, here we are, use us. Is there risk in those statements? Absolutely. But is there fullness? Is there completeness? Is there wholeness? Absolutely. And that's what we want. So I hope this morning, that you have learned some of the lessons that the Jewish people learned as the uh, rabbis taught them this passage that was all about a Gentile and their enemy discovering the grace of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these passages. Lord, as we ask the question, why are they here? You speak to us. And Lord, I, I pray this morning as we heard these words, we'll realize that our, our hope our hope this Christmas season is as we come to you and allow you to produce wholeness in our lives. Lord, again, this day we commit to you. We simply ask that your presence will go with us as we live your life through us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. 
To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.